A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart. Chapter 1 Wood splinters flew into the air. Gun smoke ate at Arthur's lungs. Blood turned to mud. Then there was silence. Arthur did what he always did when the person he was auditing inevitably raised their gun. He fell to the ground and covered his ears. He was incredibly quick at this. The trick was to fall backward instead of forward or straight down. He learned this by memorizing the graphic they kept at the office next to the one about CPR and the Heimlich maneuver. It read, guns go up, don't frown, fall down, and depicted the same placid-looking art that all workplace cartoons had settled on. He was quietly repeating this to himself, a sort of mad mantra to ease the sudden trauma. His enforcer was a damn good shot, and Murderman was right to fear him. He was named Murderman for a reason, however. There were now three bodies on the ground, but Arthur's was the only one that was going to get up and leave. Murderman had murdered his last man. The enforcer had fired off two shots, both hits. The first one to kill Murderman, the second a revenge shot for being killed himself. Stray buckshot had nicked the doorframe from a house that would never be repaired. Murderman only fired off one shot, but it counted. A display of malice splayed gruesomely across the dust. It was a picture of cruelty and indifference. It was the only kind of portrait that was ever painted in the United Wastes. Blood soaked through clothes from cooling bodies, the constant commentary running through their brains, finally finished. Time for paperwork. Arthur could wait until he was safe at his office to write up a 22B violent incident in the workplace form. There was nothing in the manual that said he had to do it on site. But why put off for later what he can do now? He had the forms with him. This was, of course, not the first time this had happened by any means. And the scene was still fresh in his mind. Taking a moment to dust himself off and straighten his tie, Arthur McDowell started checking off boxes. Right. Arthur declared aloud. Two dead, one taxpayer, one enforcer. Very unfortunate. His handwriting was mindless. The form was being filled out by muscle memory. He drew out a slab of sticky notes from his pants pocket, placed one on the completed 22B, and wrote, Memo to self, send condolences and flowers to Robert's family. He hummed as he worked. When the bombs fell and the weather forecast became permanent nuclear fire, and when flowers of destructive fusion blossomed, leaving death in their wake, the least important question was immediately asked. Who was going to collect all of the taxes? It was, without doubt, bureaucracy's greatest triumph. Next to the ticketed queue, of course. The internal revenue services were well prepared for the war. Yes, it came as a surprise but the preparation had been done nearly a generation prior. The National Emergency Operations Manual was updated in the 1980s with a contingency for nuclear war. 
taxes were to be collected 30 days after the Holocaust, and that is exactly what happened. Bunkers were built beneath the surface, and the IRS had its own nuclear shelter. They were not the only American institution to have these bunkers. The paranoia of the Cold War made sure that they were as standard as electric heating, but they were the only ones to survive. The only people on the planet who took safety drills seriously were fire marshals and bureaucrats. So when the alarms went off and eyes rolled because of another drill, it was the IRS with their inhuman bureaucratic standards and observation of rules that made it out alive. To be clear, the newly revised National Emergency Operations Manual that was in circulation when the bombs fell did not contain information on how to rebuild society. It did, however, carry information detailing which institutions should be prioritized in receiving taxes so they could rebuild. Frankly, it just wasn't the IRS's department, and it wasn't their fault that the other parts of the government didn't have their shit together. Thirty days after Oppenheimer's gift killed the planet, a census of the immediate population was taken. The manual declared that anyone, no matter their position, rank, or function, could be reassigned to census-taking in an emergency. Once there was a headcount, the auditing and the collection of taxes began. So taxes were collected and the stores of the IRS grew fat because there was no one for them to distribute to. It was the first time in generations that there was a surplus in the federal budget. Arthur McDowell was a second-generation auditor. His father was a janitor before the war and was conscripted into census-taking twice. The second census killed him. Now Arthur McDowell stood in a dead wasteland, the United Wastes of America, as the pride and joy of the IRS. He was efficient, did everything by the letter, and, most importantly, he was a true believer. Though the scene around him was grim, there was a pep in his step. With the collection of today's audit, Arthur McDowell was finished with his year's quota, and he was finished early. They will have to promote me now, he thought with glee as he sidestepped the mangled flesh of a man named Murder. I can have my own office and be safe from all of this. I can finally be safe. Standing a few feet away, paralyzed with fear, was the little girl. Once a cow to be eaten as a last resort, she was now a payment to the IRS. The title made no difference. She had been a commodity her entire life. What she didn't know was that the IRS did not distinguish value from its calorie payments, whether it was dead or alive. What she didn't know was that it was within her captor's right to slice off the overpayment of 10,000 calories and keep it. What she didn't know was that Arthur was probably the first man who cared if she died. He might have been a bureaucrat, and he might have been living in a world where it was every man for himself, where the consequences of failure were often cannibalism. But he was no monster. Arthur did his best to smile at the little girl, a gesture which did not come off as natural, and too late he realized that the little girl had likely only ever seen a grown man smile when he was doing something violent. She winced, but did not move. Arthur did not have the skill set to talk to children. Some, uh... Some weather we got, don't we? Arthur stammered. It was a good topic around the water rations, sure to get anyone complaining. Silence. Arthur started to fret. I don't know how to talk to her, 
he thought, the bodies below him now as cold as the wind. I don't want to sound condescending, but I also don't want to pander. Tears formed in the child's eyes. This just made Arthur fret more. You're safe now, little girl. I'm from the government. Do you understand safe? She shook her head. Do you understand government? She shook her head again. He, like the rest of the country, was used to death. Though he didn't like it, he was accustomed to being around cadavers. Cruelty is so par for the course in the United Wastes. His heart should be calloused. Yet it was breaking. Arthur placed his pen under the metal clip on his board, and with his free hand, gently held the hand of the little girl. She winced but made no attempt to fight him. Arthur led her out of the once more abandoned house. Within a few steps, they were past Robert's body. A few more, and they were on the cracked pavement of the street. The road was littered with the remains of panic. Cars that will never run again sat with their doors open, like stranded whales with their flippers splayed out. They were all empty, though they may have been stuffed to the brim before scavengers found them. Suitcases lived on the road, empty like oysters picked clean. The world was a graveyard for all of humankind's now useless things. As Arthur and the silent girl trudged across the street, random bits of plastic, eroded to unrecognizable shapes, crunched beneath their feet. Looks like the sanitation department has a lot of work to do, Arthur stated in a half-jest, half-wine, and without thinking, stated the unofficial motto of bureaucracy. Oh well, not my department. The little girl said nothing. There was no more sanitation department. The little girl stopped, letting what small weight she had pull against Arthur's stride. When she had his attention, she looked up at him with urgency. We don't have a gun, she said. She may not know the words government or safe, but she knew the rules of the United Wastes. Kill or be killed, or kill or be raped, then killed, then partially eaten, then worn as a trophy. Whichever came first, naturally. Gun? No, no, no. He has the gun, Arthur stated, pointing at what was once Robert, his enforcer. He has the gun so that I can audit. The little girl's worries were clearly not eased, but she pulled out her anchors and continued to walk. The lesson she appeared to have learned from him was that he was crazy. They trekked on. Arthur led her in silence, four blocks down where the roads were no longer packed with derelict cars. There he took her to the only running vehicle in miles, a government-issued white IRS minivan. Though the undercarriage of the van was as dusty as the earth, the rest of it was spotless, having been washed just before being leased to Arthur and Robert. Painted on one side was a round blue circle encasing a gold badge with a weighing scale and key in the center. The words around the circle read, The Department of the Treasury, Internal Revenue Services. Arthur had hand-washed this part of the van. And so, in the first time in history, a strange man led a little girl to a white van, and nothing bad happened to her. Realizing that the little girl had likely never been inside a vehicle that could run, Arthur buckled her in and started the motor. He adjusted his own seat, checked his mirrors, and turned on his left blinker. 
Instead of immediately heading to the IRS headquarters, he decided to drive back to Murder Man's house. The little girl's mood changed slightly as the van moved. She looked unfamiliar with the sensation, though it should never be so foreign to a child. Has she never experienced fun? Arthur thought. What's, uh, what's your name? He asked. Dinner. Of course it was. Arthur slowly weaved the van between the derelict cars, a task that Robert had avoided. It took longer than he had any patience for, but it was something he had to do. Ten minutes passed before he successfully navigated his way the four blocks to the house. This will only take a couple minutes. Is there anything you want to get while we are here? Asked Arthur. With determination in her eyes, Dinner nodded, jumped out of the van, and ran into the house. With a heavy heart, Arthur left the van and opened its back door. He looked at Robert, now just meat. I'm sorry, he said. Then, with much labor, he dragged the heavy body into the back of the van. Soon, Dinner emerged from the house, clutching the cleaver that was held to her throat only a short time ago. She held its sharp edge at face level. Is this why she asked if I had a gun? Arthur panicked. The little girl knelt down to Murder Man's corpse, and with a single, purposeful motion, she hacked off one of his fingers. It bled very little. Arthur was surprised by her efficiency as he watched her unthread a shoelace from his boot and tied his finger to it, making a necklace. Arts and crafts. When she was done, she looked up at Arthur, most of her suspicion appearing gone, and asked in kind, innocent earnest, Want one? Arthur shook his head. They both climbed back into the van. The rest of their journey was silent. About the Author M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dust Mice. Available on all streaming services and dustmice.bandcamp.com.